This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With free event and show insurance for members and clubs, we make it even more fun. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. Hey, ditto that. Hi, I'm Jim Martin. Trevor and I and our two guests today are kicking off 2013 with some ideas for New Year's resolutions actually worth keeping. If you're still an armchair modeler, finally getting started on your dream layout is certainly a worthy resolution. My guest, James McNabb, has some great ideas to make one's dreams doable. And here's another great New Year's resolution. Reach out to others. My guest, Brooke Stover, will tell us how a great train website can draw people together. First, here's Trevor. Here at the Model Railway Show, we'd like to introduce you to people in the hobby you may not know, but we think you should. My guest today is a good example. Conventional wisdom in this hobby states that more is better. More space plus more track plus more operators equals more fun. But such monster layouts also require more of things we don't necessarily want to devote to the hobby. More time, more money, more maintenance. And some really big layouts are impossible for the owner to actually operate solo, because to do so would wreck the setup for the next operating session. Average house prices go up even as average house sizes go down, and today's hobbyist is often also juggling a career, a family, and other interests, any of which could be all-consuming. So here's a resolution for the new year. If you're currently an armchair modeler, then raise your right hand and repeat after me. I will start a layout this year. I will do all of the bench work, track, and wiring so that I can run trains. I will even get a start on structures and scenery. And I will do all of this in just 12 months. You can put your hand down now unless you're scratching your head wondering how you're going to make good on that resolution. Impossible, you say? Well, that depends on what you're trying to model. Just ask James McNabb. James has picked a small section of a prototype and is modeling it faithfully in about 225 square feet. His HO scale rendition of the Iowa Interstate's Grimes Industrial Track features just 10 turnouts and single train operation. But it's a beautiful layout that I think would be a pleasure to work on and operate. We'll have photos of James's layout on our Flickr gallery, so be sure to visit themodelrailwayshow.com and have a look. It may be the inspiration you need to make 2013 the year you build a layout. James, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thank you, Trevor. Pleasure to be on with you and your audience. Let's start with your prototype. Why the Grimes Industrial Track? Well, the short answer to that is because it was there. That is the ultimate reason to do any layout or any modeling endeavor because you find something that you like and you say, I want to do that and I want to be a part of that. And for me, I moved to central Iowa about the turn of the century in late 2000 and started in a job in the Des Moines area. And my office was located about a mile from the Grimes Industrial Track. So I could actually sit at my desk at my window and rail fan. It was great because I was being paid to rail fan. And I just would sit there and watch these trains go up and down the line once a day, maybe two or three times a week because it's a very small branch line. And that soaked my interest. And I said, what is this railroad? Let me find out more. And I did the research and kind of got to know the Iowa interstate as an entire entity and then the part of the Grimes Industrial Track that serves Greater Des Moines. And it just struck me as this is a really cool operation. And it just works well for me and for my philosophy of building and 
operating and maintaining a model railroad. I once worked in an office building that overlooked Toronto's Union Station, which had about a thousand GO trains go in and out of it. It wasn't quite a thousand, but it seemed like that. So I'm glad I didn't have the same sort of desire that you did, or else I'd still be building GO train cars. I have to ask, is your office on your layout then? It is not. The road that my office was on is on the layout, but because of the narrow shape, I couldn't make it fit into the space. Although I can know that when I'm standing in front of Meredith Drive, I can look down on my layout and say, that's the view I saw out my window for the four years that I worked at that business. And so it's nice to kind of have that little moment enshrined on my layout. Well, I was going to ask if you looked at other prototypes and maybe why you rejected them. Obviously, having this right outside your window was really compelling. But before you took that job, did you have another prototype in mind or another layout in mind? Oh, absolutely. I think like all great model railroaders, you get inspired by the railroads of the world period. Growing up on the East Coast, I obviously grew up with the CSX and the Norfolk Southerns of the world, and especially the port operations around the city of Charleston, South Carolina, which is where I grew up. Then when I moved to Iowa to go to school, I was right on the Union Pacific Main Line, the old Chicago Northwestern that got bought by the UP in 1995. And so I would watch trains at college just shooting through Ames, Iowa, up at Iowa State. I was a big fan of the great big role in railroad for many years, still am. But railroads in general are interesting to me. So I'm always fascinated by finding new prototypes and new locations. One of my favorite ones is also in Des Moines. It's actually served by a small line of the Norfolk Southern. And you would think, how did the Norfolk Southern end up in Des Moines, Iowa? Well, it was because of the old Wabash used to serve Des Moines. And over the years, it just kind of, you know, became the Norfolk Southern. So I've always thought that was a really great operation. And then I always said that if I ever got tired of doing the Iowa interstate, I was going to do the Norfolk Southern in Des Moines because I thought it was a great prototype to follow. But I just like trains at the end of the day. It sounds like you also like following a prototype that is a little unusual. It's not Union Pacific or CSX. Is that a fair comment? I like the out of the ordinary, the unique, mostly because I don't really want to have a layout like everybody else has a layout. Obviously, the Union Pacific, the Santa Fe, all the big seven railroads, they're popular for a reason, but Obviously, it's like, oh, you're doing the Union Pacific. Oh, I know a guy who's doing the Union Pacific. I know a guy who's doing this and the Union Pacific and this and this and this. And there's nothing against that, and that's great. But I wanted to have something that was a little bit more unique. They would say, oh, that's James McNabb's layout because he's the only one that's doing it. And it's also a little bit of economics of scale and of building a layout. I would love to be able to model the Union Pacific mainline across Iowa, but I would need more space than I could ever possibly afford, more locomotives than I could ever possibly build, more tracks than I could ever possibly maintain to do that in the way that I would want to do it. And so if I only have to model a single train, five-mile branch with 10 turnouts, I'm going to get that done in a reasonable amount of time and to a level that I enjoy without trying to bite off more than I can chew by modeling these super, you know, class one railroads. And your layout space is fairly modest. I think we should tell listeners you've got about 12 feet by 18 feet, 8 inches. I think a lot of modelers would look at your layout plan and say, I would have packed a lot more layout into that room. As you've mentioned, your design features very narrow shelves. There's lots of open aisle space, some fairly long runs of single track with no spurs or sidings, and only 10 turnouts and a single train day. I have to admit, I really like what you're doing. It's my kind of layout. It's the sort of layout that increasingly I'm building. Every time I start another layout, it gets simpler and simpler. Why did you take that approach to layout design? Was it tempting to fit more into that room? Absolutely. It was tempting to fit more than the room, but I didn't need to. And that was one of the reasons I chose to do what I did. The two reasons. The first is that that's what the Grimes line is. It is a single track straight line branch with only 10 turnouts, only six of which are currently active. The other four have been spiked and are out of service. It is a narrow, straight, 
up the line and back line. So I didn't need to add more track, add more turnouts because they weren't there on the actual prototype. If I started adding more track, I'd be no longer modeling the Grimes line. I'd be modeling something else. The other reason was, again, the space. Our house is 88 years old and it has an 88-year-old basement. And being able to completely renovate that basement into the perfect layout space was not in the cards and still is not in our cards to this day. So I had to make it work in such a space to fit that space. To get from our house to where our laundry room is, you have to go through the layout room. Well, I had to be able to carry laundry baskets back and forth. The furnace is on the other side of the layout room. If we ever had to get in there to get it or the water heater or anything else in our mechanical room out, I didn't want to fight with the layout. I didn't want to have to tear out chunks of the layout to do basic house maintenance. And so by designing it in such a way that you could easily move through the layout, it made life easier. It made living in a home and maintaining that easier. And it also was more accurate to the prototype. So no helixes around the water heater then or anything like no, that? No, <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Like all good layout designers, I sketched a couple of dozen plans and, you know, what about this and what about this? And, and at one point, a double deck was one of the possibilities. And it was just like, this is ridiculous. I'm killing myself making this more complicated than it needs to be. Just make it a shelf and be done with it. It sounds like you arrived at this approach basically by following what the prototype did. But were there others in the hobby who have influenced your design? choices along the way? Well, absolutely. The people that have influenced me is the people that influence everybody. All the names that you hear about, you know, your Tony Custers, your Alan McClellans, your Paul Dokos, the Jack Burgesses of the world, more recently the Lance Midheims, the Pell Solbergs, the people that we all know and respect. But if there were two that I could really call out, I'd have to start with David Barrow. I'm of an age that I got into model railroading seriously about in the mid-90s, and one of the first editions of Model Railroader that I owned, I still have it, was when he started his three-part series, which ran in 1995 in Model Railroader, and it was about how to design, how to build, and how to operate your layout. And that was my come-to-Jesus moment. That three-part article really just opened the door for me and shed light onto that. And I have always been a fan of David Barrow and his Cat Mountain in Santa Fe. I feel that his approach towards designing and constructing and operating a layout is revolutionary, at least for me. I know a lot of people talk about the V&O story as kind of the Bible for prototype-based operations and a layout. To me, it was David Barrow's writing in that three-part series in 1995. Anything that he has written, I have just devoured. I have the videos from the Alan Keller on the old Cat Mountain. I just think he's doing it right and always felt like he has done it right. So my design is very much influenced by his writings and his ideas in model railroading. On a more personal note, the second influence is my good friend Joe Ackeson, who is also modeling the Iowa Interstate. He models the Iowa Interstate's subdivision for the West End from Atlantic to Council Bluffs, Iowa. When I first got interested in the Iowa Interstate, he was on his way to becoming the preeminent modeler of it. And in still is. His article was written up in the last edition of Model River Planning, and he and I have become good friends. He has been my support system. I like to think that I've helped him with his layout, and I know that he has helped me with mine, because I can just sit there and go, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? Because he's as knowledgeable about the Iowa Interstate as anybody could ever hope to be, because he's taken the time to do it. I noted that one of the links that we'll have for our listeners to show them your layout also has a feature on his layout as well, so listeners will be able to see what he's doing. That's 
perfect, yeah. Joe's got a masterpiece of a layout, and I've been over there to his house several times. He's been over to my house. We both operate on each other's layouts, and every time I go in there, I see that he's done something new, and I go back and go, well, i got to tear out something on my layout and make it better because i got to try to keep up with him and what he's doing. Let's talk about your layout a bit more. Uh, you started the layout in May of 2011, and one of the things I noticed when I was looking at your layout online, I came across your blog on Model Railroad Hobbyist on the forum there. We'll have a link to that in the episode guide for this show, so listeners can have have a look at that. And I'm impressed at how much you managed to accomplish in a little over a year. How much time do you typically get to spend working on the layout or at your workbench making projects? It's hard to really know exactly how much time I do because I don't really have a set schedule or a set time. I have a tendency to kind of work in fits and spurts on both the layout or at the workbench. And so I'll get down there and for a couple of days just attack it for an hour or two at a time and then I'll finish something and then I'll step away from the layout for a while and just not even walk downstairs if I can. So it's just kind of the way I work, just kind of little moments of sheer panic followed by moments of I'm not going to touch it. Actually, as we're doing this interview right now, I just kind of finished stepping away from the layout for a very long period of time for me. It's been a good six weeks since I've done something on the layout, mostly because of some home innovations that we were doing and also because of just the rest of life getting in the way. And within a past week or so, I finally kind of gotten back and said, I need to build something. I need to make some progress on there and have gotten back into the layout and started building again. Hopefully this discussion will get the juices fired up and you'll get back in there and do some more stuff. How much of the layout do you consider finished and what major projects do you still have to do on it? The nice thing about the layout is that it's really gave me the opportunity to start small and work up from a scenery and a construction technique. I was lucky that I went in and was able to build all the bench work and get all the track laid in and running and wired so that I had an operating layout admittedly on bare foam. And then I've been going back and slowly taking a scene by scene by scene and building it up. The way the Grimes line works is that it's considered an urban short line or an industrial short line, but I've always referred to it as a suburban short line because it cuts a lot through not real heavy industrial area, but more wooded green belt type stuff. So all the green belt stuff is done, and now I'm getting into more of the industrial areas, which take more time because it's easy just to put down some static grass and some trees, and now I've got to actually start building some significant structures. I'd say I'm about 30, 35% done on the layout. Now it's just going to slow down a little bit because I've got to spend more time working on a single building as opposed to scenicing, you know, 15 feet of right away. Just like with any layout, there are countless other projects that will take me years to complete. My car fleet is woefully inadequate, both from a mechanical and from a look standpoint. I've started the process of getting my car fleet to better represent what exactly was used on the Grimes line during my modeled era. And so I've got boxcar after boxcar that needs to be re-stenciled and weathered and upgraded with couplers and upgraded with wheels and all the usual stuff that you do. So that's going to take me a while just because it's not something I enjoy doing. And there's always the little projects, the little details, the little things that are a boon on the smaller layouts because you can actually take the time to do it. But I can see spending the next couple of years working on this layout until I would even consider it finished if any layout is ever finished. You've mentioned that upgrading boxcars is something that maybe isn't on the top of your list of things to do. Are there any favorite aspects of the hobby for you? Anything that you'd love to avoid if you could? I think I'd love to avoid it all at some point if I could. With any project, there's always that one thing that drives you insane. In my career, I'm a television producer, so I'm always happy when a project comes together and is completed and I can stand back and say, we did this, this was created, I had this role in this. And that's kind of how I feel of any kind of hobby or modeling is to be able to stand back and say, look, I 
did this. So I don't think there's any particular aspect that I enjoy more or that I dislike more. It's just wanting to get started on it. And once I get started, I'll finish it and say, all right, that's done. I can move on to something else. I'm not a big fan of scratch building just because I don't consider myself that type of modeler. I'm more of an operator than a modeler, but I need to do it because that's the only way I'm going to be able to get the layout I want. So each project has its own unique adventures and challenges. How are you going to approach the scratch building for structures then? Are you going to focus on scratch building the structures that are maybe key industries and then use kits for some of the fill-in material? Or I think I'm going to probably do almost everything scratch built using just some basic photo wallpaper techniques that have become in vogue in the past couple of years. There is no kit on the market that works for the Iowa Interstates for the Grimes line. I can take bits and pieces and parts and make them into something, but by the time I buy a Walters kit and kit bash it, the money I would have invested that I could have spent on styrene and photo paper for my printer and gotten a better model of what was actually there. Well, let's talk about the Tramp now. That's the name of the assignment that works the Grimes Industrial Track. Is that the employee's name for the job? It is. The Iowa Interstate, like all great railroads, has some great employee names for some of its trains. We've got Rover and rockets and all sorts of other creatures running up and down the line. But the Tramp is the one that serves the greater Des Moines area. And it's an interesting train because you got to think of it kind of like Air Force One. Air Force One is not a specific airplane. It's whatever plane the president happens to be occupying. And that's the way the Tramp works. Just before my modeled era, about 2004, Des Moines was served, and the Grinds line specifically, was served by a dedicated Des Moines switcher. It was labeled train DMSW. It would serve the Grimes line. It would serve the energy changes in the Des Moines area, and it would kind of every once in a while venture out to some of the industries just beyond Des Moines, but it was based in Des Moines. By the time that I came to my modeling era, the Iowa State's traffic patterns had changed that they started having the Grimes Line served by the Newton switcher train NTSW. Newton's about 30 miles to the west of Des Moines. And so it still was considered the tramp when it came into Des Moines, but it was train NTSW. It was a different train. Today, in 2012, 2013, the Grimes Line is being served by a multitude of road and switcher trains, including ones from Council Bluffs. Council Bluffs is a good 150 miles to the west of Des Moines. So you've got traffic patterns continuing to change and the Iowa State obviously evolving to meet the needs of its customers. So it's still the tramp, but it's a different train that's playing the role of the tramp. And obviously the tramp is the train on the line on your layout. What does a typical operating session on your layout involve and how long does a session take? Well, the sessions are going to take just as long as you want it to take. I can adjust the car flow to give myself relatively quick sessions, half an hour to 45 minutes, maybe an hour, or I can crank it up and really be operating for two, three hours. But at the end of the day, it's really up to me and then up to you, if you come operate, how long you want it to be. It's a small layout. It's not going to take you very long to do the stuff. If you run it 50, 60 miles an hour and you're not taking your time and doing prototype practices, you're going to be done real quick on the layout. And so the secret to having an enjoyable experience on the Grimes line is to slow down, take your time, and model all aspects of the prototype. And that includes the speeds, that includes procedures when coupling, that includes pausing to simulate hookup for air hoses and making sure the joints are good and setting handbrakes and unlocking switches and all the stuff that the railroad does in real world that if we were to take the time and model in our own layouts, we'd have better layouts. I guess that's really important with such a straightforward design, isn't it? Because as you mentioned, a, a person who is new to model railroad operations would probably just zip through a set of switching orders 
in 10 minutes. Absolutely. I mean, you're only going to move at best four cars on the layout, and you're going to serve maybe two customers in that time. The average model railroader or the average operator were to look at it and say, well, I'll be done in 10 minutes. Then what do I do? Well, you're done. Thanks for coming. You'll spend more time driving than you will you know, actually operating. But if you take your time and slow down, my average sessions are more than an hour, and I'm moving three cars. If we were to actually increase that, and there have been some times where it's been five, six car trains, we're doing two, sometimes three hours, depending on the complexity and what the demand is for that session. But you really have to just slow down, take your time, do it just like the prototype does, and not rush through it. We're not UPS trucks. Our job is not to get through this as quickly as possible so that everybody can get their package. The job is to relax, enjoy, and have a good time on the session. What sort of operating tricks, I guess, are you adding then to the layout? You've talked about the slow speeds, making sure that you've coupled up air hoses, taking the time to do that work that the real railroads would do. I notice you have a lot of grade crossings on the layout. I assume that that adds some time to the operating sessions as well? Absolutely. I mean, the grade crossings are the most signature thing that we see in our interaction with trains on a daily basis. So if you ask any railroader, they say the thing that scares them the most is when they go across the street at grade because they have no idea what a car is going to do. So actually getting a train across a road is a rather involved process, even when you have gates down and lights flashing and bells ringing and horns blowing and all that stuff. All it takes is one errant driver to plow into the side of your car and you've had a ruined day. So when I'm operating, I'm just doing everything that I see the prototype do and trying to simulate it on a one-to-one scale as much as possible. When they come to a stop, they don't immediately throw it in reverse and start backing up. It takes a while for the locomotive to slow down, to stop, to make sure it's clear, and then start backing it up. These are big, hulking machines, and they don't zip around like slot cars. And I think that's one of the big mistakes that a lot of people that are beginning into operations think is that they just do everything at three times the speed. It shouldn't be stressful. You should never sweat in a model railroad operating station. You should never you know, have heartburn. You should never feel pressure as, oh, am I going to be able to finish this before the fast clock gets to 12 o'clock? If that's the case, I really think you're doing it wrong. This should be an enjoyable, relaxing I'm going to work through this, you know, I'm going to think through it, I'm going to escape from my everyday life and just, you know, I'm going to have a good time for an hour, an hour and a half, and then I'll go back to the demands of real life. Well, as I mentioned off the top of the interview, your layout, I think, flies in the face of conventional thinking in the hobby, that as model railroaders, we need to have huge, complex empires in order for the layouts to be satisfying. You've explained a lot of your rationale for taking the approach you did, but when you discuss your layout with others in the hobby, what sort of reaction do you get from them, and how do you answer their Comments. I get all sorts of reactions from the, wow, it's a great layout. I think you're doing a great job, which obviously I appreciate from a personal and also straight ego standpoint. And then I get the usual, well, have you thought about adding this? And have you thought about adding that? And why are you doing it this way? And the questions that you would kind of expect. And my response has always been, I am doing my best to emulate the actual prototype operations of the Iowa Interstates Grimes Industrial Track in September of 2008. And that generally stops people on their tracks because I know that I've clearly defined my goals and my mission for this layout. Now, it means I have to do my research and I have to do my homework so that I can be intelligent and speak intelligently when I'm challenged onto stuff. And all great ideas that I have on my layout, I will gladly give credit to the person that did it. And all the bad ideas are most likely my ideas. And I have, over the years, have obviously adapted and adjusted 
how I approach the model and how I approach the hobby and how I approach my layout, but I still can say I'm doing it like the prototype is, and so I'm okay. Yes, it may seem weird, but this is how they do it, and I enjoy that. A lot of hobbyists spend their time planning for a dream layout for the future instead of building something today. We all know armchair hobbyists like that. The other thing that happens with people is when they do get that chance to build a big layout, they build a huge layout, and somewhere along the line, they burn out. Do you think that hobbyists are missing an opportunity by not exploring constructing and operating more modest prototype locations as you have? What sort of advice do you give to people on that? My advice is the great thing about model railroading is that there is so many opportunities. There are so many options for us. I do not in any way look down on people that choose to do pure freelance fantasy. If that's what floats their boat, more power to them. That's the great thing. I still think that George Sellers' Franklin South Manchester is a beautiful layout, and anybody that says otherwise is blind. It's really about finding what works for you and being willing to accept that. But I think a lot of hobbyists would be more adapt to get started if they realized that they didn't need to be like everybody else, that there's something out there that works for them. And sometimes the best way to learn that is just to go and see what happens. At the end of the day, you've spent money on lumber and foam. You can always buy more lumber and foam. You can always start over. That is one of the great things about this hobby. So often we're trying to get everything perfect on the first time, and that's simply not the way it works. This is not the first layout that I built. It will most likely not be the last layout I built, but I've always known that I have learned something at every one that I've built that I can then apply to the next one. If I had still had my first layout that I ever built back when I was in high school, if I had built that with the logic of I've got to get this right and I'm never going to get another chance again, I would have gotten out of the hobby years ago. But the fact that I have always been able to say, let's try again. Let's see how we can fix this and make it better has made this a thoroughly enjoyable hobby for me. One of the things I enjoy about doing this podcast is I'm learning a lot from all the conversations I'm having, and I'm getting to meet some great people that I might not have run into, like you, James. Thanks for joining me on the Model Railway Show today to share your layout with us. I think there are many valuable lessons to be learned from what you're doing. Thank you, Trevor. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, Trevor, that was a great chat you had with James. It just goes to show how big ideas can spring from small layouts. And big conversations, Jim. You probably noticed that I blathered on there for 24 and a half minutes with James. But, you know, we just had such a good time talking about all of the things that he's able to do on a very simple layout from a track plan perspective. We have links to his track plan and to a number of pictures. He has a blog on the Model Railroad Hobbyist website. We'll have links to that. He has also posted some videos of his layout on YouTube. And we'll have links to that at themodelrailwayshow.com so people can see what he's doing. You know, there's some quotable quotes in there. A model railroad is not a UPS truck, so slow down. Enjoy the operation. I like that. Yes, I really enjoyed that one, too. Yeah, he was a very memorable interview. I hope we can have him on the show again. Well, just a reminder, there are a number of different ways you can choose to listen to our show. The fact that you're with us proves you found one of them. But check our homepage at themodelrailwayshow.com for alternatives that may be more convenient for you. And don't forget to visit our Flickr gallery and swag shop while you're noodling through the website. Also, New Year's greetings to the good folks over at the Train Life website. Trainlife.com is where you'll find all our previous programs all the way back to episode number one. 
Well, it's Jim's turn now as he talks to a fellow S-Scale modeler. More and more model railroaders are building their own websites, but if they want to see the full potential of one, they should visit Brooks Stover's Buffalo Creek and Golly website. We've made it easy for you. You can simply click on the link on this show's episode guide and then be prepared to stay a while. Pack a lunch. Brooks, who lives in the Detroit area, has chosen to model a fairly obscure prototype in a minority scale, S-Scale. He's been widely published in the hobby and rail press, writing about both his layout and the prototype he models. We won't try to mention all of his books and articles because, well, you can find that guess where, right on his website. A few years back in Railroad Model Craftsman, Brooks wrote about his website and how from modest beginnings it took off. It's now the go-to website for anyone wishing to know more about this fascinating West Virginia short line. In fact, a credible model railroad could be built anywhere in the world using the information Brooks has assembled in this one place. Brooks Stover, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. i got to say, first of all, I have visited your layout in person, and in this day of digital photo enhancement, your layout looks every bit as good in real life as it does in the photos. Thanks for the nice compliment on the layout. Like most modelers, I guess, I've poured my heart and soul into it, and it's always nice to hear comments like that. Was that a good stress buster for you? You were in the auto business, a pretty high-pressure business. Yeah, that's right. I worked for General Motors for nearly 40 years in new product development. Clearly, working to a deadline was something we did a lot of. It's nice to relax and do the layout at the pace I wanted. Be your own boss. Briefly, what was the Buffalo Creek and Golly? The BC&G, I guess, was a classic West Virginia coal-hauling short line. It was chartered in 1904, and it ran all the way until 1963. It was located just about dead center in West Virginia, and one of the amazing things about it was it was only 18 and a half miles long. For its entire 60 years, it was steam-powered, and during that time, it hauled millions of tons of coal from a single coal mine to its lone connection with the B&O in trains that in the later years were 60 cars long or longer. Now, the BC&G was owned by a company called the Elk River Coal and Lumber Company, which also owned and operated a large sawmill, and they had Shea and Climax engines, which they used to bring logs out of the woods. So it was both the coal hauling BC&G and the logging activities of the Elk River Coal and Lumber Company. Actually, the Elk River Coal and Lumber Company owned everything, the mine, the sawmill, the houses, the church, the stores. It was one of the last feudal systems in the U.S., You know, we all know the expression of you owe your soul to the company store. Well, that was the deal with the Elk River Coal and Lumber Company. But as you've expressed in your website, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing to work for this company, right? No. One of the things that has been very interesting to learn from the people who have been able to be in contact with is while it was a modest living and they worked long hours, everyone has very fond memories of life working for the company. They were well cared for. Basically, everything was taken care of for them as long as they did a good day's work. Hard work, stress-free. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it sounds like you've described something that would make a good model railroad. We'll get to that in a minute. On your website, you say the September 2009 RMC article is the most satisfying one you've written about your work. Now, given the quality of work that you've presented in other articles, why does this one stand out for you? I guess I'd say because the story was about the website instead of about an aspect of the hobby that's traditionally covered in the modeling press. Of course, there's lots of articles about how to make water or how to weather a steam engine, but I think mine might have been the first 
first one on how to do a website, and obviously my hope was that it would inspire others to build websites about their prototypes, especially if they were obscure prototypes like the BC&G, because it's so hard sometimes to dig out information on the more obscure railroads, and they're frankly the ones that are a lot of fun to model. Really, this article stands out for you for perhaps its usefulness to a great number of people. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Hopefully some other people have tried to do that themselves. You're talking to a bit of a Luddite here, Brooks. I am almost free to admit that. How easy is it actually to start up a website? I mean, can you Google starting a website and just take the prompts? Well, that's interesting because that's exactly what I did. I had retired for a while and uh, was trying to decide what to do with all this information I had about the BC&G. I had talked about a book, but then this idea of a website occurred to me, so I did just that. I Googled building a website. A half a dozen sites popped up. I went to them, and literally, you can pick a supplier, a website company. In my case, and I think this is true of all of them, they download the software to your computer, which you use to build the website, and then for a small fee, they maintain the website each year, keep it up you know, on the internet. You can update it yourself very easily. In my case, it's just like a PowerPoint program. So you just drag and drop pictures, write text in boxes, slide the boxes around, change the colored backgrounds. You can do the whole thing yourself. You are probably pretty familiar with PowerPoint. Oh, absolutely. So when I found this, I thought, well, this is a no-brainer. I mean, this will be fun. You can literally get started with no outside help if you know your way around a computer and built any kind of presentations with PowerPoint. You say very little cost. What is the cost, and does it vary by the size of the website? How does that work? Yeah, it varies by the size of the website. It also can vary by the amount of support you want and so on. And I would say that that's something that anybody should look into. Make sure you inquire what kind kind of support is covered in the program that you pick. It cost me about $250 a year to maintain the website. And in my case, I've had other people contribute to that funding just because they've contributed information. They want to help keep the memory of the BCNG alive. Even if people weren't contributing to the cost of the website, that really is money well spent if you're trying to find out arcane information about something. Oh, absolutely. People have contacted me that I would never have been able to get in touch with, and they have provided information and photographs that I would have never been able to get access to any other way. And now, literally, people around the world have access to that information, so it's been great. The site has grown significantly since you wrote the article. What did you have in mind for the Buffalo Creek and Gully website when you first started it? I'd been collecting information for almost 30 years on the BC&G. Every photograph I could find, every magazine article, I even had some memorabilia. I'd interviewed a few people. And I just wanted to get it all in one spot on the Internet so that if anybody else was interested, it would all be there. There was also this notion of preserving it should anything happen to the hard copies and stuff that I had. But frankly, I had no idea whether anybody would ever search on the Internet for the BCNG and wind up at the website. The focus of the website was the prototype information. Later, it occurred to me, well, I had to put a section of the website about my layout. So on the home page, you'll see there's two navigation bars. One says prototype information, and the other says layouts or model railroads, I think. Mm-hmm. But the original objective was to just put out there everything I knew about the BCNG so that anybody else who might want to could build a model of it. How do you publicize something like this? Do you hope for people uh, will Google Buffalo Creek and Golly? Or is it referrals? Does it grow exponentially? How does it grow? 
it just started on its own. I did no advertising because it's not a commercial venture. I didn't, you know, you can set up a website so that if anybody goes to your website, a little ad will pop up. And then if they go to that advertiser's website, you get a nickel or a quarter or something. You can make money that way. I didn't want to do any of that because I wanted the website to honor the memory of the people who had made the BCNG a reality, you know, the people who lived there and worked there. So I didn't want to have any of them think I was making money off of what they did back in the 50s and, well, 1900 and 1960. So I never advertised, and it just was by word of mouth. I would tell my friends, they would tell their friends. Uh, then, of course, after the 2009 article in RMC, that got a lot of exposure. And now pretty much anybody who knows the railroad knows that I have a layout, knows that I have a website. Yeah. And amazingly, there's been almost 75,000 visits to the website in five years from all over the world. Europe, Ireland, Australia. It's just been amazing. So when did the surprises start? Well, immediately. I mean, literally, I got the thing started, sat back and wondered, now what's going to happen? And almost from the beginning, the hits started occurring at 20 hits a day. And it's been a pretty constant 30 hits a day. Some days it's peaked whenever a magazine comes out that makes reference to it. Like right after the RMC article, it went way up for a few weeks. Then what happened was the people that found the website started contacting me saying, oh, gee, I got some information you don't have, or I have a photograph that you might be interested in. And that's when I realized I had created something far more than I had originally envisioned, and that was a two-way mechanism where people who knew nothing about the BCG could learn something, but people who had information that I didn't have could provide it and add it to the knowledge base for everybody. And that's probably been the most satisfying part of it. And they aren't all model railroaders, are they? No. In fact, the vast majority of people who contact me as a result of the website are rail fans and are people who had family or who themselves lived in Clay County, where the Oak River Coal Lumber Company was located. They write and say, gee, we're so grateful that you've preserved these memories. It, it brings back memories for us. So, no, it is not model railroaders primarily that have benefited from our site. It's real fans. I'm tempted to want to go through your site page by page, Brooks, but I'm trusting those listening to us have taken a look on their own. Suffice it to say, it is a very large and well-organized site. The interactions with others who visit and contribute to the site have to be very rewarding for you. How many new friends would you think you've made? That's a good question. I've been contacted by, I would guess, a hundred people, but there are probably six to ten that I'm in regular dialogue with, and a couple are noteworthy. One of the guys, his father was an engineer on the log trains, and he worked as a teenager as a hostler, and he kept the fires banked in the Shea and the Climax at night, so he's intimately familiar with all the workings of the logging activity and the activity of the sawmill. Another woman who still lives in West Virginia, her dad managed one of the company's stores. A third person was raised in the town where the sawmill was, still lives in the area. And one woman, amazing story, she actually lived as a child in one of the logging camps where they had permanent structures, bunkhouses for the loggers and a dining area where they ate and so on. And she was raised there. She provided stories about the log camp, even a sketch of the way the structures were arranged in the log camp. So those people are examples of the half a dozen to 10 that are young enough that they're still on the internet, can provide information, remember the 
these things very clearly, even though they were quite young at the time uh, they had these first-hand experiences. Mm-hmm. But I've literally communicated with 50 to 100 people uh, in the five years. Is the BC&G website the new company store for former employees and residents to, to gather and trade stories? Is it a social point for them? Yes. I've had a number of people, as I suggested earlier, express gratitude that this forum was created where the information could all be preserved and shared. And interestingly, at least in one case, some people who had not been in touch with each other in 40 years got together because one of them posted a note in the guest book on the website. Somebody else saw it and contacted the other person via email. And the one person had moved, I believe, to Colorado. The other person was still in the east. And so they got back in touch with each other after all these years being apart. So those are the kinds of things that I never anticipated would grow out of the website. But that's been one of the very satisfying parts of it. I've had people contact me and say they would like to contribute something to the BC&G Museum as if I am a museum and I have to write back and say, no, I'm, I'm just one guy interested in this railroad and taking the time to put this information together. Now, you're kind of like these classmate uh, websites, aren't you? Your layout's pretty much finished now, and I know you have this huge website, which you and others are feeding on a constant basis. Is this now primarily how you practice the hobby? I would say no. For a period of a couple of years, it took intense effort. New information was flowing into the website at a ferocious pace. And so I was spending most of my hobby time on the website. Now the information has slowed down substantially. For example, I have in probably two years not seen a photograph that shows a part of the railroad I'd never seen before. New information is getting scarcer and scarcer. I still have a lot of projects on my layout. I host operating sessions regularly, and that's frankly the most satisfying part of the hobby for me now is watching others enjoy the layout. I also enjoy photography and photographing now other people's layouts to help them get exposure of their good work as well. I still spend probably a couple hours a week on the website adding, improving, but it's just one part of my modeling hobby. This is perhaps a good time to congratulate you on your photo work. You belong to the Southeastern Michigan S-Gagers. Their modular layout won Best in Show over two dozen other layouts in Grand Rapids this past summer. And I just want to mention to folks that layout now has a cover story in the November 2 2012 issue of NMRA magazine, you and Gaylord Gill. So hats off for that as well. You've given us a lot of good information here, Brooks. Have we missed anything on how to go about starting a website for those who are thinking of it? I would just restate maybe what I said earlier. First, look at the software that their host company would provide and make sure you think it's something that you'd feel facile using. I think if you had to depend on somebody else to update the website for you, a lot of the fun would go out of it. And then make sure that they provide the technical support you need because getting started, there'll be lots of questions. The only other thing I might mention is I created a separate email address for anyone who wanted to contact me as a result of the website, and I keep that separate from my other personal business, both from a security standpoint and just so all the stuff related to the website comes into one mailbox and I can ignore it until I'm ready to sit down and say, okay, what have I got in my inbox as a result of the website? Good idea. Brooke Stover, thanks for being with us. You have your own books and videos about your layout and the prototype. We'll just mention folks can find them right on your home page, and they know how to find that. We want you back on the show next time, Brooks, to talk specifically about your modeling philosophy, which uh, is a chapter in one of your books that I think should probably be required reading. Think you can join me for the next show? Absolutely. I look forward to that. Looking forward to it myself. Thanks. 
Thanks, guys. Well, Brooks' website is one of the most extensive I've seen, Jim. Like I advise, you got to take a lunch because you can spend a lot of time in there. Brooks is a really a widely published guy, too. I mean, he's been in great model railroads. Most recently, the November issue of Model Railroad, he's been in RMC. This summer, the NMRA magazine and the S-Gage Dispatch. So he gets around. Yeah, I... He's like you. He's just, every time I open something, I, I see his uh, masthead. Well, I wouldn't say that. He's writing a lot more than I am, that's for sure. But I'm busy doing this podcast. I also write a blog, though, and I think it's interesting to mention that, well, Brooks has done a very extensive website. You don't need to jump into the deep end in order to get your layout online. I think a blog is also a great way to get your layout out there. They're really easy to start, and they're friendly for those who aren't as comfortable with computers. And in fact, the group that you and I belong to, the S-Skill Workshop, has a blog as well. And I'm, I bet we're going to see some pictures in a report when the S-Scale Workshop takes its layout to the Railroad Hobby Show in Springfield, Massachusetts at the end of this month. Tell us what you're doing there, Jim. Clever segue. Well, myself and three members of the S-Scale Workshop for sure are going to be dragging our modules to the Amherst Railway Hobby Show in West Springfield, Massachusetts. That's coming up the final weekend of this month, actually. So if you're in the Mallory Building, well, you'll want to be in the Mallory Building. It's a huge show, by the way, four buildings. But uh, when you get to the Mallory building, look for the S-Scale workshop layout and drop by and say hi to me. I'll be the guy with Jim embroidered on his shirt. It's another one of those places where you need to take a lunch. After you've finished your lunch with Brooks's website, pack a lunch and go to Springfield, right? You bet. A few other things going on this year, I guess we should mention before we go. Just a little look ahead. Streetsville Junction is a local NMRA convention here in the Toronto area, and you and I have both been asked to moderate a panel on the state of hobby manufacturing, which I think will be interesting because we talked to Marty McGurk and Joe Gianavario about that on the show a couple of episodes ago. And so I'm really looking forward to that. That's in April, and we'll have a link on our website to that as well. We'll be easy to find. We'll be wearing the striped referee shirts. That's right, and keeping the teams in their corners when the fights start. The other couple of things we should mention, if you're planning your calendar for this year, the Peachtree Express, which is this year's NMRA National, takes place in Atlanta, Georgia in July. And the 33rd Annual National Narrow Gauge Convention is this year in Pasadena, California in August. We, we haven't had anyone on about the Narrow Gauge Convention, have we? No, we haven't. I talked to Paul Scholes last year, and it came up in conversation. But these narrow-gauge conventions are great. I think uh, we'll have to jot that down on our to-do list and expect to hear something about the narrow-gauge convention later on this year from us. Sounds good. But next time on the show, as you've heard, Jim is going to have Brooks back to talk about his four important layout design principles. And I'll be chatting with Andy Reichart of Proto 87 Stores about building track worthy of today's super-detailed rolling stock. In closing, a happy new year and continuing thanks to the guys who help keep this show on the boil. Dave Woodhead with the music, webmaster Otto Von Drack, and our ever-affable tech guy, Chris Abbott. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. I think this is, this is wandering too badly. Um, <laughs> we're, we're starting to ramble here. You know, I'm just going to... We've been rambling for 47 shows. Uh,